Praise the Lord. Well, we got a full house here this morning, and uh, can we just put our hands together and welcome all our visitors this morning? Come on, put your hands together. Let's go. We're, we're so happy to have you visiting with us today. We, we hope you make it a habit. And uh, we're just so grateful that you're here. Many of you might be here because you've got family members being baptized. Uh, you might be here because, hey, it's Easter Sunday. And you're like, shouldn't I go to church on Easter Sunday? You're right. It's a good day to go to the house of the Lord. But we're so grateful that you chose to be here with us this morning. For all those who are watching online, we're so grateful that you joined us today too. And we trust that this uh, day has all, already been a blessing. Uh, and it will continue to be. So at the end of the service, we're going to say goodbye to our online uh, folks, but we're going to keep the cameras rolling. So if you've got family members being baptized or whatever, uh, the baptism will be recorded, but it won't be broadcast online. So you don't have to worry about your kids being, you know, paraded over the internet, but it'll, the camera people will still be working because they, you know, you might say, hi, I'd like a copy of that video of my son or daughter or my husband or whatever being baptized, then you'll be able to get that. Is that cool? So, uh, yeah, so I just thought I'd let you know we're going to be doing that. Praise the Lord. Well, on Friday, we heard that when Jesus went to the cross as the perfect lamb, that his blood was shed just as the Passover lamb was shed on the threshold of the home. And that blood being shed and applied to the threshold of our hearts as well is an invitation for God to come in and, and, and have communion with us, to make relationship with us. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation for him to come and to be a part of us and to us be a part of him and his family. And uh, so if you look at that and you say, okay, well, if that's what Friday was about and that invitation was issued and, and it was all good, then, then what's Easter Sunday about? What is Sunday about? One writer said that Sunday was the Father's amen to Jesus saying it was finished on Friday. But I think that the resurrection was more than just an amen. And you can say amen to that. Uh, it was more than just a statement of agreement or an endorsement, which is what amen means. Uh, it was more than just a footnote in the life of believers. But the resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity. And the reason the resurrection is so important is because the resurrection affirms that everything that happened on Sunday, or Friday I should say, happened to the only person that could be actually make it applicable to us, that could only bring us life. And when he rose from the dead, he rose from the dead and conquered the death that blood was paying the price to reprieve. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just demonstrate that he had authority over death and over the hell and over the grave, but he did something that changed all of history for every one of us who would follow that's why it's the most important day for Christians. And we're going to explain all that in a minute. Did you know that a long time ago, one of the bones from Buddha's finger was found? Did you know that? And uh, I don't know how they determined that it was Buddha's finger, but the bone from Buddha's finger was found, and it was brought to the emperor of China during the Tang Dynasty, so it was a long time ago. But somewhere over history, the finger got lost. The finger got lost. Then in 1981, someone found the finger again. <laughs> Not making this up, all right? It was a sensation for Buddhists everywhere. 
Buddha's finger had been found. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to tell a serious story here. <clears throat> Buddha's finger had been found. And, and for Buddhists everywhere, they were flocking to go see the finger. They were so excited. <laughs> they were excited about the finger. <clears throat> but you know, if someone claimed to find the finger of Jesus... We wouldn't pay any attention to him at all because we'd know it's a hoax because he's not in the grave, right? The tomb's empty. Jesus rose from the dead. We'd know it was nothing but a farce. Wouldn't pay any attention to that person at all. We'd, in fact, we'd, you know, maybe tell them that they're mocking the kingdom and the message of the gospel and go peddle it somewhere else because we know it's not true. Jesus rose from the dead victorious. And when he did, he did so in a manner that wasn't just a spirit going up into heaven, but his whole physical being was resurrected to a new being as well. Amen? Amen. Fingers and all. Are you? All right? The whole gamut. Praise the Lord. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, he said, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we'll be pitied more than all men. So if our hope is only for here, if this is the only place as good as God is, if this is it, it's not enough. But the reason we're walking around with a permanent smile on our face here is because we know not only is God with us here, but we also know of what he has guaranteed us yet to come. Amen? And that's why we are the happiest people on earth. That doesn't mean we don't have bad days. You know, the pastor's not standing up here trying to condemn you if you're having a bad day. But bad days don't have to be bad lives. Hello? Are you hearing me this morning? Because of Jesus Christ, we've had bad days. My wife and I have had bad days. But bad days don't become bad life. Bad life comes without Christ. With Christ, we have life, the Bible says, and life more abundant. Amen? Hallelujah. It seems like every year at this time of year, Time Magazine, I noticed it was on there again yesterday, uh, Time Magazine, People, you know, Life Magazine, they all do big spreads in their magazines about Jesus. And uh, they talk about, over the last number of years, things like uh, the Jesus Seminars. Don't know if you've ever heard of them before. It's a bunch of liberal theologians getting together and picking apart the testimony of the Bible regarding Jesus Christ. Or the Da Vinci Code, right? And those kinds of books and movies. All that stuff that's out there. And you have to ask yourself, why is so much energy invested in attacking the historicity of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead? Why do they expend so much energy attacking something that they don't believe in in the first place? And I think the reason they go after it, and the reason they attack it so hard is because they too instinctively know that if the Bible's true, it changes everything. Hello? If it's true, it changes absolutely everything. Now, you and I are here this morning because we believe it to be true. And we have lots of good reason for believing it to be true. Not just of personal miracles we've experienced or things that have happened in our own life, but be archaeological digs, uh, history, uh, revival movements throughout history, the shaping of Western civilization. All of it leads us to go, we're pretty confident that it's true. But we also understand in the midst of that belief that the resurrection literally changes everything. And so we know how important it is. 
And we know this because the Apostle Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul, who wrote literally, uh, you know, two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, he had this to say in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want you to listen to his words carefully, verses 12 to 23. He said, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And he says this line that we just read earlier, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Then he switches the narrative in verse 20. But, everybody say but. but. Everybody say thank God for great big buts. This is one of the biggest ones in the Bible. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, everybody say first fruits. First fruits. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. There is no doubt that Paul understood the resurrection to be the centerpiece of our faith. He makes it abundantly clear in this passage. Not only does he believe that there was a literal resurrection of Christ's uh, body, not just his spirit taken up to float in a cloud, but his body as well. Not only does he believe that, but he believes that something special happened when Christ was, from, uh, was raised from the dead and that it was the first fruits. It was the first of many that would come. So that you and I also would experience the same thing as Paul said when he comes again. And this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't just that a man came and he lived a good life and he set a good example and some people didn't like him, so they put him on a cross and they killed him. And there's many people out there who try to preach that kind of a message. That we are to take his example, his example of self-sacrifice, his example of love for all people, his example of uncompromising compassion. And we're to live that kind of life and hope that by exemplifying the life of Jesus Christ, by some miracle, we get to have eternal life if there is such a thing. That's not the gospel message. But that's how many perceive their Christianity. Hoping that somehow by emulating and, and duplicating the good works of Jesus, the love of Jesus that we get to get in. No, that's not the gospel. Paul said, if only in this life you have hope, if your hope is all in just being a good person here and now, you're pooched. You're to be pitied above all people. Why? give up the whole Epicurean song of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, right? If death is the end. If death is the end, then maybe that's a pretty good motto. Maybe you should just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow it's all over. Just being honest. 
right? Live for yourself. Do what you want to do, yada, yada, yada. Why do people have these, these mantras in their head? They're there because they, they don't believe that this life is but a precursor for eternal life. That this life is an opportunity for us to exercise the divine life in and through us until we get to experience it in its fullness for all of eternity. That this life is simply a down payment on what is yet to come. Amen? And so we who believe that, well, then we have every reason to live differently, to love differently, to have uh, hope within us that possesses us and drives us forward because we recognize this life, as Paul said, is not it. It's not it. So what is it exactly that did happen in the resurrection that causes you and I to have such incredible hope? We have to understand exactly the nature of the resurrection. The resurrection isn't just a celebration of Jesus coming to life again. But it's a celebration of Jesus' victory over death and over hell and over the grave for not only himself, but for every single one of us here today. C.S. Lewis has some of the best observations about the resurrection, and you knew I wasn't going to have an Easter Sunday without quoting the good Anglican here somewhere, all right? So here you go. C.S. Lewis made this observation about the nature of the resurrection. He said this, when modern writers, and he was writing in the 19, probably 50s when he wrote this, modern writers, he said, when they talk of the resurrection, they usually mean one particular moment, the discovery of the empty tomb and the appearance of Jesus a few yards from it. The story of that moment is what Christian apologists now chiefly try to support and skeptics, like in Time Magazine and everything else, try to impugn. But this almost exclusive concentration on the first five minutes or so after the resurrection would have astonished the earliest Christian teachers. In claiming to have seen the resurrection, they were not necessarily to, uh, claiming to have seen that specific moment. Some of them had... Some of them, including the Apostle Paul, had not. What they were claiming was that they had all, at one time or another, met Jesus during the six or seven weeks that followed his death. The resurrection to which they bore witness was, in fact, not the action of rising from the dead, but the state of being risen. Are you hearing me? The state of being risen. A state as they held, attested by intermittent meetings during a limited period. The termination of this period is also important, for there's no possibility of isolating the doctrine of the resurrection from the doctrine of the ascension. So what they were claiming to have had witness to was Jesus in a new existence, in a new body. That it wasn't a ghost. Hello? Didn't Jesus say, here's my hands? You know, here's my feet. Go ahead, Thomas, touch them, right? He was there in, a, in an actual body, a really cool body because he was able to pass right through the wall, but a cool body nonetheless. <laughs> you know, when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't become some dismembered you know, kind of floating spirit going, you know, and it's not like we're all going to follow him in that same state and sit on a cloud and eat Philadelphia cream cheese and play a harp. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose to a brand new physical existence. A brand new physical existence. One that was no longer limited 
by sickness, disease, time, and pain, but one that would be eternal, one that would exist forever. And Jesus today still exists. Are you ready for this? In a body. Really? Now, that's why we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Christ lives in us by his spirit. But the resurrected Lord is still an actual physical being. This might shake some of your theology up, but it's true. You might have to wait a long time to have a chat with him for eternity. Because he's going to have a lot of people to talk with. So you might have to take a number. And your number might take a thousand years or more. But it's okay. You've got lots of other people to see and things to do. You know what I'm saying? Cream cheese to eat, you know. There's... But the reality is, is that he sits at the right hand of the Father in a physical resurrection body. And the Bible tells us that that body is the first fruits of what you and I will also experience. A divine body that's been altered in such a way that it will no longer know decay, will no longer know death, it will no longer know pain. It will be able to meet the rigors of eternity that we are actually being prepared for. Isn't that fascinating? And a lot of times we gloss over that in the scripture, but this is what the scripture actually teaches us. So when we celebrate the resurrection, we celebrate not Christ rising from the dead per se, but Christ coming into a new existence, the first fruits, the Bible says, of which we shall also come into existence. Somebody say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And like I said, the scripture attests to that. Jesus stood before the disciples. He said, here's my body, right? Hear the wounds, touch them, see who I am. And then he was ascended in that form up into the heavens. And the disciples were all standing there going, Then the angels of the Lord appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring up into the heavens? This same Jesus that was taken up into the heaven will come again one day. Amen? Amen. Then they said, now get to the upper room and get some Holy Spirit, right? Just to put it in real simple terms. And so they did, bam, and the church was born. Amen? Somebody say amen. Wow. And we'll be celebrating that in a few weeks here. Coming up on May 28th, little shameless plug. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be awesome. Lewis notes this. He says, we also in our heart of hearts tend to slur over the risen manhood of Jesus to conceive him after death simply as returning to deity so that the resurrection would be more of a reversal than, than an, an undoing of the incarnation, right? That being so, all the references to the resurrected body of Jesus tend to make us a little uneasy and make us ask some awkward questions, But the reality is, is that he did raise to a brand new kind of existence. And this is what Lewis says about it, finally, last time I quote him, I promise. He said, Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man, Adam. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Hallelujah. Aren't you excited about that? And so that the Bible tells us that, yes, when we die, our body goes into the grave. But one day, that physical body will be remade and reunited with our spirit into an eternal body that will last forever. And that we will literally recognize each other, know each other, and hopefully be a little trimmer uh, in our eternal existence. And uh, we will experience that throughout eternity. 
being able to share in a divine existence together with our Heavenly Father. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Paul states it very clearly when he writes of the resurrected Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. Listen to a number of references. He says this. Romans uh, 8.29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church, which is the, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. <clears throat> Hence, one day we will all follow the firstborn, Jesus, yeah. and we will be the latter fruits that will follow the first fruits. And we will walk into that same existence with Jesus throughout eternity. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. Don't you think that's pretty good? I'm going to ask the candidates if you need to go change, get changed right now. And uh, uh, I thought we'd have seats here at the front, but I guess we don't. So, uh, <laughs> can they sit here? Yeah. We'll, get, we'll make room for them. Amen. Praise the Lord. So they're gonna, as they're slipping out, let me just say this. Why do we love to have a water baptism on Easter Sunday? We have them other days too, but why is it so significant to have one on Easter Sunday? Because there's a lot of symbolism in being baptized in water. And water baptism is an illustration is an illustration of the life that we experience in Christ. When a person is baptized in water and they go down underneath the water, it symbolizes Christ's body being put in the grave. And when they come up out of the water, it symbolizes Christ's resurrection power and victory over death and over the grave. And therefore, it is a testimony that we believe in the work of Jesus Christ the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's also a testimony that of our own life, as we were once bound by sin and darkness, we sim- uh, and we go under the water, it symbolizes us dying to that self through Jesus Christ and being resurrected to new life. Amen? So the candidates today, as they come forward to be baptized, we don't believe the water baptism has any magical power. Water baptism does not save you. Water baptism does not transform you, even though people have had some wonderful experiences as they've been baptized in water and had some great encounters with God. The reality is water baptism is a testimony of what has already happened in your heart. And it's a further testimony to what Jesus has already accomplished in his death and resurrection for every one of us. Amen? And so for us, water baptism is essential as a believer because it is us testifying to the completed work of Christ in our life. That we have been changed by him, transformed by him. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. The Bible describes the victory that baptism testifies to in many different ways. One of my favorites is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. I want you to hear this this morning as we close. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, also with him, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Again, Paul's asking a question to which the answer is no one. 
Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then listen to this incredible passage, especially you folks getting baptized today, hear this. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Who can be against us, folks? That's right. Jesus graciously gave us all things in victory. In victory, no one can bring a charge against us. In victory, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. In victory, no one can separate us from the love of Christ. In victory, we're more than conquerors through him who has loved us. In victory, nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I have victory through him. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Well... We do have a...